AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Welcome to the latest edition of 100, the Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, a discussion with academic, broadcaster, social commentator, and author Mark Lamont Hill. He and co-author Todd Brewster have just released their new book, Seen and Unseen. The book explores the importance technology has played in the fight for justice and equality. From the black and white footage of the savage beatings of protesters on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, to the viral video of the murder of George Floyd. The book explores how seeing injustice often helped move the needle toward corrections. But we started out by talking about the current state of politics. Our conversation took place one day before Politico leaked a Supreme Court draft opinion that would scuttle federal abortion protections. This sent Democrats scrambling and was the latest example of the left seemingly playing from behind. I asked if he agreed with me that Democrats have been politically fumbling and seem to be missing something in the fight against the grand old party. I absolutely agree. And you could have asked me that question almost any time in the last 30 years. <laughs> I, I, I fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> 
but but I I think right now, you know, we're 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 into we're halfway into the Trump, uh, excuse me, the post-Trump years, and you can no longer simply ride the wave of I'm better than him. Because effectively, what the Democrats did was they did not win the way Democrats traditionally win elections, the way people traditionally win elections, which is to have someone who moves people. Whether you like Trump or not, he moved people. He inspired people. Obama inspired people. Bill Clinton inspired people. George W. Bush inspired people. But uh, with Biden, this is one of those times where he said, look, I'll make sure the trains are running on time and I won't be that guy. But two years in and many people have stopped looking for jobs. Unemployment numbers are, are good. That's something that they're touting, but what they can't tout, frankly, is, is economic prosperity for a whole bunch of vulnerable people. Uh, whether you want to blame uh, the president or not, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, while it is more manageable than it was at its worst, it's not over. And people still feel like they're suffering right now. If you look overseas, if you look at what happened uh, in Afghanistan a year and a year ago, you know, the, 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 the decision to end war makes sense to people, but the disaster that emerged afterward because of the hastiness and the poor intelligence uh, that was deployed, it, people are uneasy with that right now. And it's not the biggest issue, but it's another, it's another issue, you know, in, in local cities, you know, people are paying the price for uh, democratic candidates are paying the price for crime being high. Again, whether it's an individual candidate's fault or not, isn't the point right now, people are catching hell and they want relief. And the Biden administration has yet to offer a clear and coherent vision and plan that touches the, the spirits and the hearts of folk, but also their pocketbooks and their wallets. And so as long as they keep riding on the, well, remember what happened on January 6th, or well, at least we're not that guy. If that's their only message, they're going to be shocked in the midterms and even more shocked in 2024. Here's what is not unique to this time, particularly if we use history as a guide. Um, but most of the time, the party in the White House will lose some seats in midterm. But you can lose, and then it, it can be disastrous. I think we are walking to a line of disaster. Oh, yeah. In the, in the House, I mean, you, you could be talking about not 10 or 20 seats, but more like 40. You know, I mean, a worst case scenario, you could be talking about 40 or 50 seats in terms of the swing or in terms of the loss. Um, that could be disastrous. You know, if you talk about losing um, the Senate, you know, and if you talk about losing the power in state houses around this country, which is the part that, again, different Democrats are often outmaneuvered on. You know, it's not enough to just win, uh, you know, the, the House and Senate. But, you know, many of the fights we have right now over critical race theory, over gender neutral bathrooms, over whether the library stays open or whether there's public housing, uh, you know, opportunities in a particular re in, in a particular area. It comes down to decisions that are made at the at the city and state level. And Republicans have mastered for decades winning those seats over and over again, especially in vulnerable midterms like like we see right now. And you're absolutely right. Ed. I mean, it, it's not uncommon for the the party with all the power to take a look in in, in national midterm elections. Um, but the sort we're about to see is more than just American voters being uncomfortable yeah. with too much power. And it, it's more than that. So what do we tell black voters who have often found themselves between a rock and a hard place? They give their votes to uh, a party. Uh, they got a man in that, you know, they weren't in love with, as you suggest, but they saw it as better than the alternative. And we still haven't learned quid pro quo. We don't understand that politics is I give you this. You give me this back. 
So what do you tell the average black voter who may not know all the intricacies of politics um, and has become even more disillusioned than they were when they voted for Biden? On the short term, we got to say the rock and the hard place ain't the same thing. They, neither is where you want to be. But one is a whole lot worse than the other. And we can't slip into the both sides argument. We can't succumb to the, well, this is bad. So I might as well get the other side a try. No, 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 no. We, we, we got to make different choices. Um, the other thing we have to do, though, I think, is a long term plan. And it's a thing that we never want to talk about because it's a long term plan. And that is political education that is organizing folk and that is energizing the base uh, through, uh, through through a different approach to politics. So political education is exactly what you're talking about, Ed, with the with the quid pro quo thing. Right. Not just giving them the basic kind of framework for politics, but but also getting them to understand what's at stake with each of these choices that we make. You know, if we lose the House and Senate, what's at stake? You know, what does it mean for us to not get another shot at the Supreme Court for another four or six or eight or 10 years if we uh, if we lose a, a, a national presidential election and don't have the, 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 the strength? Republicans had such a stronghold on the Senate that even when they didn't have a president in office, they were able to protect the Supreme Court in many ways, right? We saw that with what they did with Merrick Garland and holding out. They had the power to hold out. Uh, the other thing here is we got to stop being so damn nice. You know, Republicans don't play by the rules. They play to win. And when the rules suit them, they say, look at the rules. And when the rules don't suit them, they say, these rules aren't fair. But they do what they got to do to win. And we have to stop we have to stop doing something different. So let me ask you this. I think uh, I, I, let's take the Supreme Court as an example you know, I saw so many people excited about Ketanji Brown Jackson and look at what we have and a sister and blah, 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 blah. But they didn't get the connection that if you don't vote and make sure that Warnock and others stay in the Senate, you're not going to see another Ketanji Brown Jackson. You look at critical, critical race theory. What you're seeing Republicans do is exactly what you talked about. They're not just complaining about it. They're running for school boards. They're running to make sure that they can change the curriculum in these states. How do we get us to understand that the game has to have a game plan? I mean, if you love sports, you understand you can just run out there with five dudes on a basketball court, and that's cool for street ball. Yeah. But if you're winning in the NBA, you got to have a game plan at the end of the day. Absolutely. It's the difference between the Sixers and the Pistons, for example. <laughs> well, <laughs> don't bring my Pistons that. into this. That's a whole other thing. But yeah. <laughs> but, 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 you know, part of what that means, again, is showing people what's possible. That's why I say political education is not enough to just go out here on the Internet and make memes. It's not enough to just tell folk to vote. And it's not enough to give black folk like they do at the, you know, on Election Day, that big list of people where they should vote for each item. Right, That's right. Not enough. This is a four year deal. It's like, you know, Christians talk about the seven day gospel, not just what you get on Sunday. We need a seven day gospel of politics every single day. We got to show folk uh, and we got to encourage folk. I mean, the beautiful thing that came out of the Ferguson activism was that a few people, some really important people decided, you know, I'm going to run for Congress. I'm going to run for the state house. I'm going to run for city council or, 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 or the mayoralty. We got to do that everywhere we go. We have to show people that, yo, a lot of times you can win a city council seat by organizing 5,000 people. You know, you could win it. You could easily be on a city council in New York or, 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 or you could be an alderman in Chicago if you can get four or five, six thousand people. These young folk that win elections and surprise the nation at 18 and 25 years mm -hmm. old is because they organize their friends. They use social media. We have to show people what's possible and then show them the benefits after we win, because it's not enough to just win. You got to show people like, look what happens when you win. And, and, and we haven't done that effectively.
Let me ask you the thing I get in trouble with often, and that is black leadership. Mm. I don't think that we hold black leadership accountable. I have been so disenchanted, quite frankly, over the last decade, maybe two, maybe two, uh, in terms of the lack of new narratives, the idea that we're satisfied with a quick paycheck or, Mm -hmm. you know, an invitation to the White House. Um, And as long as that leadership remains happy um, for as much as they preach about the community, I've not seen the needle move. I've not seen too many people. I don't want to paint across the board with one large brush, but the idea of really holding back and suggesting, I'm not giving you this until I get that. Um, what's your thinking on on current black leadership? And I put black leadership in quotes because, of you know, we can argue what that is here or there. Yeah, when, when it comes to elected leadership, and one of the things we've seen in the last two decades is a shift from the kind of unelected leadership mm-hmm. that dominated black America. If you ask people in, in 2000 who the president of black people was, they might say Jesse Jackson. Right. Because the most powerful people we had positioned uh, were people who weren't elected to national office. We didn't have black folk in the Senate. We darn sure didn't have them in the White House. But it's but in the Obama moment, the post-Obama moment, we've seen more and more people elected to office uh, who also are seen as leaders in our community, in addition to the, the, the powerful tradition of civil rights leaders and grassroots leaders and activists that we see. But the question is, are we still satisfied just to have somebody in office? Are we are we are we happy just to say we got the first black this or the second black that or are we actually going to hold them accountable for outcomes and 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 make the same demands of them that we would make of other folk? Now, on some level, the answer is yes. We didn't we didn't ask the Clintons for nothing. And we didn't ask the Obamas for nothing. <laughs> but but so we are being consistent. But the, the key is how do we turn that up a notch so that we can we can make better questions? And that's why I keep beating that drum of political education. We got to be there. That means our pastors, our imams, that means our teachers, that means our war leaders, our block captains have to be part of a project of organizing people and teaching them what's possible by giving them a new, a new language of, of critique, a new language of imagination, so that we're not stuck in the same place of saying, if we could just get the black police chief, if we could just get the black mayor, and instead say, if we could just get the police from being occupying forces in our neighborhood, if we could just get funding in our school, if we could have African-centered history in our his, in our social studies classes, it, the, the outcome has to be something concrete and deliverable to the people, not um, uh, not not the the emergence or the ascendance or the coronation even of a single black leader. Yeah, let me ask you an unfair question. Uh, admittedly, it's kind of like the NFL draft. You really don't know what the real answer is going to be until after the fact. But prognosticate for me, what do you think when you look at midterms? How how bad is it going to be? Like a Mike Tyson fight in the 90s, man. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, <laughs> don't don't pop no popcorn in the first round, man. You, it, 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 unless something extraordinary happens, I think Democrats are going to be beaten uh, not just because of 2022, but because of 1619, right? The Republicans are going to be beating that drum of critical race theory in 1619, and they're taking your country away. And, and, and disaffected, disillusioned, angry white people are going to the polls in droves. And all of us are going to, not all of us, but many of us are going to not even know what hit us until we get to 2023 and people start talking about the emergence of uh, of Trump again or the emergence of whomever is running on the right. And then we'll start to see a battle 
But by then, so much damage will have been done. So I'm expecting a huge takeover of the House. I'm expecting a minor takeover of the Senate. And I'm imagining gubernatorial elections all around um, the country to, to swing in Republican favor. When, when I think about the Senate seats that that were celebrated two years ago, I mean, like I mean, like the Warnock seat. When I think about uh, people who are going to fight really courageous races in the next two to four years for for governorship in states, I think. We're going to see losses. And in those states where we gained a lot, like Georgia, um, like Texas, like Ohio, like Pennsylvania, uh, we're going to see we're going to see setbacks. We're going to see extraordinary setbacks. Let me suggest and I agree with you. The one thing that I will say that I'm most frightened by is when we saw mirrors of that, you typically still had a, quote unquote, strong White House. It wasn't slipping on a banana peel wasn't faltering. And when I say that, I mean by the presidency itself and the man behind that desk, even when Clinton was embroiled in impeachment and all of what we saw, uh, there was still a sense of, to your point earlier, an inspirational note of who this person is. When you couple what I see by means of the lackluster want uh, to be behind Biden uh, and what is coming, I think makes this an even gloomier picture. I hope I'm wrong, but we'll see. <laughs> Let me you take it. <laughs> when we come back, Losing Black Media and Mark's new book that looks at how technology is a large key to equality for people of color. We turned our attention to the changing face of media and the question of the shrinking number of Black-owned media outlets and why that becomes detrimental to getting the full story. I'm curious how you see national Black media in particular, traditional media first, and then what we're seeing, what is being dubbed as Black social media and what it's doing right and what it is doing poorly. You know, black national media is, to me, sadly, worse off than it was even 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Um, there are some great people on television right now. I'm, and we're talking about traditional media. I'm, I'm happy to see, you know, Joanne Reed on television and Tiffany Cross and, and, and Jonathan Capar. I mean, there, there are some black folk who are doing amazing work. Uh, there just aren't enough of us. I mean, if if when you look at uh, you know where we were twenty or thirty years ago on 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 national broadcast media plus cable media, I mean, there, is there be? I mean, I'm the host of BET News, but we, there's no nightly broadcast, right? We do specials, right? But there's no nightly broadcast. There's no Ed Gordon. There's no Jackie Reed. There's no you know on TV. There's no Tavis Smiley anymore, like we had on PBS nightly. And so the places that we could depend on for, for nightly news simply aren't there. Of course, there was Black News Channel. We lasted for about a year, uh, but you know, for a variety of reasons, that didn't pan out. And so there's no single source on mainstream media where we can get our story told, where we can get traditional news approaches, but with, from a Black perspective. Um, there are, however, a range of amazing opportunities in new media, or we, we should say that you know, new media, emerging media, whatever you want to call it, you know, so you can watch Roland Martin every single day. And, and that matters. That's powerful. You know, then there's the, the non-traditional news approaches 
that are on non-traditional media. For example, we see more presidential candidates go to the breakfast club mm-hmm. than we do to any any sort of traditional news outlet. So that's also a very become a very, very important space. Um, what I'd like to see uh, in terms of th- that type of approach of news is I'd like to see more outlets and, and, and more Black journalists doing the work. I love what happens in lots of spaces, but I think it's important for actual trained journalists to be out here getting opportunities to interview, to engage, to tell our stories in a variety of ways, the griot, the root, they're doing it. We just need more of it. And then um, we look at Black Twitter where we get to tell our own stories where I can go live anytime I want on Instagram or where someone can TikTok an informational video or whatever the thing might be. Um, That is so powerful, but also very vulnerable. You know, the idea that, you know, our biggest stories, our biggest ideas are susceptible to the whims of a corporate media outlet that doesn't care about black folk and largely exploits us, right? The folk that make money off TikTok ain't them black girls dancing. It's the white people that make the videos after after they copy the dance, right? It's the themes and the memes and the talking on black Twitter that reverberate around the world, but we don't get no check for that. And now it's not just susceptible to the whims of corporate media. It's, it's susceptible potentially to the whims of an individual billionaire. That scares the hell out of me. And so I'm very encouraged by the fact that Black media outlets and all these new media spaces have proven that Black folk ain't never going to be quiet. We're never going to be silent. We're going to push back, fight back, resist, create, lead, et cetera. But I'm disillusioned by the fact that all this time later, we don't own enough. We don't control enough of the conversation on our own terms. Um, And so I'm just looking for more. And and honestly, I, I feel increasingly responsible uh, for the fact that there isn't more, you know, I, I need to do more of what you do. I need to do more of what Roland does. I need to do, do more of what other brilliant black pioneers have done to help create more media space for us. And that's difficult because one of the things that you mentioned that people don't realize and Roland and I, and a number of others have had this discussion, you know, if tomorrow, uh, and the, the question about what Musk will do with Twitter, you know, we like to call it black Twitter, but that ain't meant, but Twitter with black folk on it. Right. (laughs) Uh, And to your point, you know, at the whim, if it becomes subscription based or if any of these, you know, uh, platforms that have decided to let you come on for, quote, free, decide tomorrow we're going to charge you 100 or 200 or 50 or whatever the price may be per day, per month, per week, whatever the case is, there are going to be a lot of voices that do go away. I look at an Isaac Hayes. Uh, you know, who's trying to take on the big behemoths and say that we can own these kinds of things. I still go back to the white man's ice is colder. You know, mm-hmm. I think about all the time, if I was at BET, I was seen one way, but the minute I worked at CBS, black folks saw me another way, like you made it to the big leagues. Right. And I did better work, quite frankly, on BET. And so what would you like Ooh, to see? You're preaching gospel right now. <laughs> what would you like to see in terms of us, again, as a community, try to morph and change our thinking and our ways? Man, first of all, that thing you said about the BET CBS thing, it, you, you know what resonates with me. Yeah. And, you know, I did a nightly show for the last year on Black News Channel, and my ratings were relatively good compared to other folk uh, on the network sometimes, but I never got half a million black people, all these millions of black folk in America. And I, I couldn't get uh, 200,000 black people a night. 
Now, some of that was about our own promotion and lack of brand awareness and things like that, which I, I don't blame black people for. But there is a way that when people saw me on CNN or when I was on Fox or whatever, they were like, yo. And then when they saw me on Black News Channel, it's like, oh, he fell off. It's like, no. Right. It was a come down. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's like, I'm making more money here. Right. I, I, I control that. I'm the managing editor. And every night I'm giving y'all black stories, black reporters, black perspectives, black debates, all this stuff. But it's like, unless people see it on a white person's platform, it's not real to them. And it's like, at some point, we have to be able to believe uh, in ourselves, right? Elijah Muhammad used to say, in the nation, you say, accept your own and be yourself. You know, until we get to the point where we actually desire our own award shows and our own platforms and our own stuff so that when Isaac Hayes III says, look, I got a, a social media platform that can do the stuff that Twitter and Instagram is doing, but we can do it on our own terms, people will be happy. They won't be looking at it as a cheaper version then, as a no frills Twitter. Instead, they'll see it as a platform that actually offers a lot and, and in many ways more than the traditional ones. Same Dash did the same thing. We got to support this stuff. And so ultimately, Black media is not going to win and thrive if we always are looking through the lens of whiteness or assessing things through the lens and with the measuring stick of whiteness. We got to believe in us. We got to invest in us. And until we do that, nothing else is going to matter anyway. Um, and then this bigger structural problem that you speak to, I agree a thousand percent, right? We we have to create our own distribution networks, our own landing strips, our own platforms for our content so that, again, we're not one angry YouTuber, YouTube exec away from shutting our whole enterprise down. There's a whole bunch of people that make their whole lives off of platforms, whether it's YouTube, whether it's Twitter, whether it's whatever, that they don't control. And that is very, very dangerous. You can't be radical. You can't disrupt power. You can't confront the powerful on their own platform because as soon as you disrupt them too much, they're going to shut it down. It's that simple. What do we do by means of helping those that are there? I think of years ago when Frank's Place was on and mm. it was such a positive show for black folk. It went off. There was a sense of anger in the black community. We said that we were going to boycott advertisers who, you know, walked away, et cetera, et cetera. We we're going to boycott, you know, that network. Uh, but, you know, it reminded me of the idea of boycotting um R. Kelly till he dropped Chocolate Factory. And we were like, oops, got to go back. Right. <laughs> so right. how do we find a way to make sure that those I think about what Byron Allen has been doing, you know, uh, and, and, and his brilliance, you know, Byron's a different guy. And there are a lot of black folk who weren't sure how to take him. But you could not knock the brilliance of what he did. He took yeah. landscape in television and nobody else wanted. Nobody wanted to be on at 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. And he just started to build and build and build until he has become a behemoth with, within himself in the media world. Absolutely. Um, but he is brave. One must say this because he will take a lawsuit to whomever he chooses and go after it. We've yep. not seen that kind of bravery amongst those who kind of get opportunity. Uh, because we're always afraid of losing that seat, losing that check, losing that. So how can we as a community help those that we see out there? One, Black people, we have to be intentional about supporting our own stuff, right? Uh, I own a coffee shop in Philadelphia. I might charge, for example, and, and a bookstore. My books are going to cost more than Amazon books. Right. They just have to, right? I, I can't charge what Amazon charges. Amazon will literally, if, if a thousand books are in pre printing of a book, Amazon will buy 990 of them to make sure that no one else can afford to sell the book. And then they'll raise the price back up. They'll sell it for, they'll, they'll sell it initially for cheaper. Let me put it this way. Amazon will lose money on a product just to make sure no one else can sell it. 
And then when they wipe out all the businesses, they raise the price back up. So we have to be willing to say, you know what? I, I believe in that bookstore or I believe in that, that, that clothing store so much that I'm willing to pay an extra 10% in order to keep that store alive. Now, I know everybody can't afford to do that. I'm not saying that go, go, go spend an extra $5,000 on a car to support the black car deal. I know we can't all afford to do that. And I'm not saying I don't know if I would do that myself. Right. But what we can do in everyday life is make choices to be intentional. I may there are people whose shows are good. I support them. Even if I can't get home every night, I DVR it. I make sure that I watch it so that they so that advertisers know that this show is being consumed. This is how we have to support each other. We have to be intentional. It's not enough to just say, oh, if it happens to fall in my lap, I'll do it. No, we have to be active and intentional in making it happen and supporting these kinds of, of projects. And if we don't do that, we will not be successful. We also, again, can't do that if we're not part of a bigger vision, right? The reason why I would support a Byron Allen or a Roland Martin or an Ed Gordon or whomever is because one, I love y'all, but two, I have a belief that black people can do this and that black people must do this in order for us to be successful. That goes back to the political education. So when pastors on Sunday morning are telling folk, for example, you know, what, 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 what to do on their taxes, how to tithe more when they tell them how to get rich when they tell them you know god meant me to drive a bentley when they're doing all of that they also can be talking about self-sustaining black communities and what that looks like in terms of community gardens in terms of books in terms of food in terms of clothing in terms of shelter we have to be intentional about that stuff and we have to be unafraid that byron allen example you gave is perfect right he's not suing just you know joe schmo he's suing mcdonald's he's saying y'all y'all aren't advertising Enough. Or now, in the case of Byron Allen, they're putting him in the small little bucket of minority advertising dollars where they only have a little bit um, reserved. The brother owns the Weather Channel. The Weather Channel ain't no minority-owned news channel or minority-focused news channel. So what, what they what they do on the one hand is they give very little money to Black advertisers, and then they, then they try and force all Black businesses into a very narrow bucket when they often fit in the bigger bucket. And so Byron is saying, no, we're going to get out. We're going to sue Comcast. We're going to sue McDonald's. We're going to sue whoever is in our way because they are actively undermining our prosperity. And Byron's not afraid to be left out of the conversation. Because like he said, if, you, if, if you're not at the table, you build your own. Yeah. Right? And, and, and I, I should note that Rich Lou Dennis, who, who many uh, knew as um, the man who, who purchased uh, Essence, repurchased it, if you will, um, said the same thing that, that you did about the idea of being willing, not exorbitantly, but being willing to pay a little bit more for uh, support to those of us that look like us. You know, we pay a black tax anyway, two more pennies, three more pennies ain't gonna matter. Uh, And it will get us out of a bind eventually. Mark and his co-author Todd Brewster's new book, Seen and Unseen, explores the intersectionality of race and tech and how today's means of communication makes technology an even greater component in the fight against racism and injustice. As we just leave the kind of 30th anniversary of the uprisings in L.A., where that man Rodney King was beaten by police and the world found out because of the video camera. We're reminded of how powerful media has always been in in the struggle for racial justice. Rodney King was the first time that video footage was part of the conversation. But when Emmett Till was beaten in Mississippi, it was the photograph Mm -hmm. of his disfigured body, his head, multiple times its normal size that appeared 
on newspapers. It also appeared on the cover of Jet magazine. And so when you had black, so you had a you had black tech, your technology and black media being used to animate a movement, right? You go from Emmett Till to the bus boycotts. Why? Because Mamie Till said, I want the world to see what they did to my boy. When Ida B. Wells Barnett uh, is using the, the same photographs that white people were using as postcards after a lynching, they were celebrating these lynchings. She used it to stir public outrage against the lynching of black folk, right? So the photograph has been used, much like the camera has been used. It, it, I mean, think about Birth of a Nation, how that was used to uh, to marshal white outrage against black folk and to normalize lynching, to normalize narratives about black folk. And then when W.E.B. Du Bois and, and, and Marcus Garvey and others tried to raise money to make their own movie, which they didn't have the money to do, which speaks right to what we're talking about right mm-hmm. now, 100 plus <laughs> years later, it, they understood that if they could make a counter story, that we they could push back against the evil lies of Birth of a Nation or the more subtle lies of Gone with the Wind. Right. So there's a way that the technology has always mattered. There's a way that media images have always mattered. Dr. King understood that it wasn't enough for us to get beaten in the dark, but getting beaten on the Pettus Bridge and letting and, and the technology of the camera combined with the media of evening news allowed the world to see it and to be forced to reckon with it and acknowledge the truth of state sanctioned violence and really American apartheid. And so this is the reality of media and technology. And so by the time we get to George Floyd, when Darnella Frazier takes that powerful, scary, chilling, ugly video of, of George Floyd being murdered for over nine minutes, America hits, takes to the streets. Why? Because they couldn't deny it anymore. It was the end of innocence. They had to say once again, another generation, this is really happening and we got to be accountable for it. Some were genuinely outraged and just didn't know this really happened. Others knew it, but were, were more prone to denying it because they don't want it. They want to live in a world where race doesn't matter in policing. But over through all of this, the technology matter. We only know the name of the officer. Uh, sure, I believe his name is uh, from Grand Rapids because of the advocacy of Al Sharpton. But combined with the, 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 the megaphone of black Twitter, we only know that we, Breonna Taylor only got a semblance of justice, only an investigation. Ahmaud Arbery only got... Uh, a semblance of, of accountability and justice from those those men in Georgia because we kept saying their names out loud in Black media. And so what this book is doing is saying both throughout history and the examples I just gave you and contemporarily, the, the use of media and the use of technology has been always integrally tied to our fight to talk about race differently and to get better outcomes for those who have been racialized in this country as Black and Brown. Frighteningly, though, we are seeing uh, counter stories being told by the same uh, on the same medium and yes. mediums uh, that will attempt to combat that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that that's the truth. That's also the truth in the history of media that we talk about. Right. Is that it's it, no, there's no silver bullet here. You can't just show the lynching and say, oh, well, we're fine. You can't just show live raw video. We People tend to think those who don't work in media and journalism that raw video uh, means you got the, the smoking gun. But it's what my voice does over the B-roll that matters. It's the story I tell and the lead-in that I give before I show you the video that matters. Kyle Rittenhouse made a video in Kenosha that had his people thinking that he was on, on the battlefield fighting for fighting for freedom and American justice. Whereas we saw the same video, so this, this boy came down here looking to kill somebody. Two different stories. You mentioned this earlier, uh, Mark. How do we make sure that we understand the difference between um, a journalist and someone who is just out here 
quote unquote, telling a story, because mm-hmm. that's one mm-hmm. of the biggest differences from what all of those examples you gave before yeah. to today, you know, whether or not we believe people are talented in that journalism seat. If you are a true jur- journalist, there are certain rules that you follow. There's certain research that you go after versus someone who has a Twitter account, an Instagram account, who may just throw something up and not know the circumstance uh, or anything about the video. They just put it up there. And as we know, the consumption by a social media audience doesn't concern itself with that. We need media, media literacy. We need media literacy. We need critical media literacy. So the, the media literacy part is about saying we need to show people, first of all, just because it's on a meme, just because somebody made an infographic doesn't make it fact. Just because it's in an article doesn't mean that the article has been sourced. It doesn't mean that it's been verified. You know, over the last 10 years, we had to, dis- we had to make the distinction between bloggers and journalists, mm-hmm. right? In terms of, you know, who, what fact finding was done here? What sources were used? These are key questions, right? Uh, 20 years ago, we had to do that with cable news, right? Just because somebody's sitting behind a desk with a camera and reading and reporting doesn't mean they're objective or fair or trying to be. You know, what happens b- before 8 o'clock, what happens after 8 o'clock on most TV cable networks is the difference between news and entertainment, news and opinion, news and proselytizing. Mm-hmm. And we often don't make that distinction. So when when Shepard Smith would turn into Bill O'Reilly, would turn into Sean Hannity, people would assume that the, the, the seven o'clock hour was the same as the eight and the nine o'clock hour. And it wasn't. And so it was easy for people to be duped. So we need to continue to show people how in all these different modes and mediums, what actual journalism is, what actual media uh, making is and, and what the distinctions are at times. And then the critical part of it is about power. We have to show people that it's not just enough to make distinctions between genres and forms but to understand what's at stake for when a Tucker Carlson emerges in the world with his white nationalist rhetoric, to understand why certain commercials air and why certain people are able to be on certain networks and, and, and why certain stories get told and why other stories never will get told. That's all part of the game. And we should note, uh, as I get to the last question, we should note the idea that even uh, in the quote unquote golden age, when Walter Cronkite was behind the desk, we can't assume that everything was right then. It wasn't, uh, but but it, it was not because obviously it was told uh, b- from the lens of white men ninety nine percent of the time. I will say though that the stellar journalists of that time often fought against their prejudices to try to try and give you an unvarnished look at it. Um, talk to me about the um, connection to James Baldwin mm. uh, and this book. Yeah. You know, we have a chapter in this book called about the influencer. You know, one of the key things in the fight for racial justice is the role of influencers, people who shape public opinion, people whose voices get used, people whose opinions get made. And when you do a so we did some research and found out that the most quoted person in the era of Black Lives Matter, it's not the founders of BLM. It's not DeRay McKesson. It's not Sean King. It's not the president. It's not a civil rights leader. It's James Baldwin. He continues to matter in a way uh, that we never uh, would have uh, ever uh, expected. Uh, He is the the ultimate 21st century influencer. And that's very fascinating. And and Asada Shakur is right up there, too. Right. Um, These are powerful names from the 60s, 50s, 60s and 70s that continue to matter now. So Baldwin uh, matters in that way. Right. Also, one of Baldwin's last books on the Atlanta uh, child murders, right? Evidence of things unseen or things not seen. 
as this book in some ways is a play on that mm-hmm. uh, in terms of our title. And, and then we talk about Baldwin saying that, you know, you, you can't confront anything until you, you can't battle or fight anything until you confront it. I don't want to George Bush to quote, but, you know, <laughs> the idea here is that um, nothing can be defeated until it's confronted. And in this country, we've had a fear of race. We've had a fear of, of acknowledging, much less confronting race and racism. And so now what that means in the age of social media and technology is that we have more tools and more technologies to take that which was unseen and make it seen. And we have to make it seen and then we have to fight it and then we can defeat it. And so Baldwin's fingerprints are all through this beautiful book. Well, the book is out there now, Seen and Unseen by you, Mark Lamont Hill, and your co-author, Todd Brewster. And I will say, Mark, as I tell you privately and publicly, man, I appreciate that your voice is out here, man, and and, and keep it up, man, because we need it. No, thank you. And I got to tell you, Matt, as always, thank you for leading the way. Thank you for being a friend. Thank you for being a mentor. Uh, and thank you for for setting such a, a, a high and lofty uh, a target, man. You, you, you raise the bar of what it means to be out here as a journalist in this world. Uh, and I'm always grateful for it. Thanks, man. Mark's book, Seen and Unseen, is available now. 100 is produced by Ed Gordon Media and distributed by iHeartMedia. Carol Johnson Green and Cherie Weldon are our bookers. Our editor is Lance Patton. Gerald Albright composed and performed our theme. Please join me on Twitter and Instagram at Ed L. Gordon and on Facebook at Ed Gordon Media.